Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Principle of Charity. I'm producer Jonah Primo, and today we've got our discussion on identity politics. So strap in, it's a touchy one. And if you'd like to get into the thick of the discussion yourself, or just offer a friendly charitable voice... Twitter is the place for that, at P of Charity. Let's get right into it. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. The Principle of Charity encourages us to listen before we lecture. And our challenge this week is, when in a major disagreement or in a conflict, can you highlight a few of the things that you have learnt from those with whom you are in conflict with. Emil, on that note, what's our topic for today? Thanks, Lloyd. Well, our topic today is about the very fraught and complex area of identity politics. Should racial identity form a basis of politics and to explore all of that? So 50 years after the end of formal discrimination in much of the West, of of race, class, religion and gender, and with formal equality now truly taken for granted in the public sphere, there are still glaring inequalities between the lives of white people and many people of colour. Whether in wealth, in health, in employment, prison time, etc., one's race still too often correlates with a life of differing opportunity and struggle. The question, of course, is why such inequality of outcome persists, where formal racism has largely been eradicated. Those on the right tend to focus on the individual, on personal responsibility, and challenge those who struggle to lift themselves up to work harder. They also look at group cultures and challenge groups to take control of their destinies and to change. But the progressive left, however, has taken an entirely different track. They see formal racism as just the tip of the iceberg, with a much larger body of racism sitting within our social structures and institutions, as well as in the implicit and often subconscious biases we carry around. For the left today, racism isn't an individual act of bigotry. It's part of the air we collectively breathe, the milk we've all drunk from birth. Whether it's our education system, our law courts, our policing, our government policy, our employment practices, or just our cultural norms, structural racism and implicit bias is seen as a continuous presence, making the lives of people of colour harder in often perceptible but cumulatively powerful ways. And this, they generally say, is not just a reason, but the only rational reason to explain the reality of racial inequality. So where traditional liberal notions of racism implore us to ignore race, to treat everyone equally, this newer understanding of racism tells us that by seeing and treating everyone equally, you miss the entire structure of racism that lies under the tip of the iceberg. But more than that, 
race neutrality or racial blindness actually becomes an act of racism itself. In the world of anti-racism, there is no neutrality as you're either working towards ending racial inequality or you're part of the problem. This new way of seeing racism is therefore less interested in whether you're a bigot and more focused on you accepting that you're part of a racist system, whether you realize it or not. If you're white, you've benefited from the tailwinds of privilege, and so your duty is to acknowledge it. Some would even say to confess it, to apologize for it, and to work to lift up those who your tribe has marginalized, recognizing that you can never truly know what they've experienced. In this episode, we're going to explore the shift to a politics based on racial identity and to look at where it's helpful and where it might be less helpful. Does it give us the tools to see through to the bottom of the iceberg and to end racial injustice? Or does this ideology drive a wedge between us all, treat us as groups and not individuals, and make us feel further apart and less inclined to care for each other? And what's its end goal? To affirm race as a way to finally end its hegemony? Or does it paint a different version and vision of of race-based harmony? In the end, does it help move us towards racial harmony or away from it? Lloyd, who do we have to help us through this? Emil, our two guests today are Ian Haney-Lopez and Chloe Valderi. Let me tell you a little about Ian first. Ian is a professor of public law at the University of California, Berkeley. He teaches in the area of race and constitutional law and is one of America's leading thinkers on how racism has evolved since the civil rights era. His current research emphasizes the connection between racial divisions in society and growing wealth inequality in the United States. From legal scholarship to media commentary, Ian's writings have appeared across a range of sources, from the Yale Law Journal to the New York Times. Ian has been a visiting professor, law professor at Yale, New York University, and Harvard, and holds a master's degree in history from Washington, a master's in public policy from Princeton, and a law degree from Harvard as well. In his most recent book, Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America, Ian has identified ways to neutralize political racism and build cross-racial solidarity. Emil, our other guest today is Chloe Valderi. Chloe is a writer, podcaster, entrepreneur, and the founder of The Theory of Enchantment. The Theory of Enchantment is a conflict resolution model for businesses and workplaces that was developed by Chloe. It tries to place compassion at the center of diversity inclusion training, and as she puts it, to fight bigotry with love. The theory of enchantment stresses character development, social-emotional learning, and interpersonal growth as ways to combat racism. Her compassionate anti-racism work has brought Chloe international acclaim, and she's lectured in universities across America, including Harvard and Georgetown. Prior to founding the theory of enchantment, she served as the Robert L. Bartley Fellow at the Wall Street Journal. She has also written for the New York Times and the Atlantic, and her work has been covered by Psychology Today. Emil, both of our guests today spend their days trying to make the world a better place, but they have different ideas about how best to do so. Ian, a Latinx man, is one of the world's leading experts on critical race theory and the theories of the left, as well as being deeply concerned about social polarization, seeing the need for all races to come together to progress society. Chloe, on the other hand, has been an outspoken critic of critical race theory and ideas like white privilege, no doubt a tricky position for a young black American woman, 
and she's challenged the dominant anti-racism training with her own unique model. Emil, let's bring on the guests. Ian and Chloe, thank you so much for joining us on Principle of Charity. Ian, I'm going to start with you. You know, we're aiming for a world of equality of opportunity at the very least, aren't we? You know, one where your race should have no bearing on your ability to flourish. And the civil rights movements were pretty successful in ending formal racism and ensuring that everyone is treated equally under the law. So what's the basis for the race consciousness rather than the race neutrality? that now forms so much of progressive politics, you know, with theories like critical race theory, anti-racism. And maybe you could sort of also outline a little bit those theories. Sure. I mean, I think to really emphasize a point that you've made, we're aiming for a society that is genuinely racially egalitarian. We want a society of equality, not just of opportunity, but of position, of prestige, of power, of, of possibility. Hmm. Is that achievable? through a means of formal race neutrality. And I think what's happening now with things like critical race theory, with anti-racism, is that the answer is a resounding no. We cannot build a world that is racially egalitarian out of a world that for 400 years has been supremely race conscious by suddenly declaring we don't see race anymore. And why not? Why can't we? What's the impediment? Uh, You know, can't we overcome you know, race by focusing on what connects us all, not what divides us? Well, we can certainly focus on what connects us, and we ought to, but we can't do it in a way that's true to the way the world actually works if we say, but here's this whole set of issues that we refuse to talk about as part of our purported approach to emancipation. And what are those issues? What are the issues that critical race theory does uncover which formal equality just wasn't able to address? Well, if you, you, I mean, a couple of them. One is the way in which so many of our ideas about others operate through this internalized cultural milieu, through unconscious mm. biases, for taken for granted stereotypes that we can't mm. surface and uh, dismantle without consciously attempting to do so. Here's the other big one. Hmm. Power and wealth in society are distributed in ways that correlate with ideas of race and racial difference. I mean, Hmm. in the United States and in Australia, look at the CEO boardrooms, look at parliament, look at the judiciary, look at the professoriate. Is it an accident that all of these folks share a white identity or almost all? Not at all. That's a reflection of how races operate in our society. So essentially- Hmm. Race blindness keeps us, a a sort of a refusal to talk about race, keeps us from talking about how race, in fact, correlates with power and position and also how race operates in an unconscious way. Now, I want to add one other thing, Mm -hmm. and this is very important. We are coming into this conversation about race from very different positions, all of us. Mm -hmm. Some of us are coming into it from a position of being culturally considered to be members of a superior group. Hmm. Some of us are coming into it being widely understood as members of an inferior group. And and Hmm. not just in how we're understood, but in the family histories we draw on, the wealth or the marginalization that informs our current existence. 
I want your listeners to imagine the advantage to certain groups, but not others, of a cultural commitment to no longer talking about race. If you're part of the advantaged group and Mm. you don't want to seriously engage with how power and position continues to be distributed along racial lines, and you don't want to closely examine internalized stereotypes that present you and people like you as superior and others as inferior and dangerous and undeserving, if you don't want to engage with those ideas, one convenient strategy is to say, I'm so opposed to racism that I refuse to talk about it or to tolerate anybody else who does. Hmm. Whereas if you're part of these marginalized groups, it becomes incredibly important that you be able to name how race continues to operate, how it correlates with power and position, how it operates at an unconscious, broadly accepted level. That is a great example. Actually, just one thing there I was going to pick up on later, but because you brought it up, I just want to jump on it now. You talk about the real, really clear correlation between race and you know inequalities in society of power and, and wealth and all these things. Have there been studies to show that it's causative, that race is causative rather than just being correlative? You know, might it be better just to look at the world through the lens of poverty and class, not through race? Or, or is race a salient causal factor in, in these differences? I'm actually the editor of an anthology on sociological writings on race and especially empirical approaches to sociological uh, studies of race in the United States. Oh, brilliant. And, And let me just say, the literature is both definitive and yet impoverished. So, so there's really good academic studies that say, Hey, look, even controlling for youth, for geography, for educational level, for for class, for family status, race has a big impact on people's life outcomes, right? So, so that's what I mean by definitive. And yet impoverished, because all of these studies seek to treat education and wealth and family structure and youth and educational level as independent of race. Whereas what Mm. we're really saying about race is that for 400 years, essentially through colonialism, race has been used as a major structuring ideology in Western countries and in the countries they've colonized, such that a lot of things correlate with race. Things like what? Poverty, educational Mm. achievement, position. Resident, right? Exactly the mm. sorts of things that we say, well, we should just focus on those and not on race. You can't separate them out. Let me make one other point. And I think this is very, very important. Race exists as a tool of power. Mm. It does not exist on its own. It did not arise on its own. It wasn't invented because people notice differences in morphology. It exists because people with power sought to develop an ideology that would justify barbaric levels of violence. Barbaric levels of violence in dispossessing people of their land, in spreading disease and taking violence and taking guns to people to drive them off their land. Barbaric levels of violence in enslaving entire populations. They needed a way to say to themselves and to their society, we're good people while we're turning these other people into property, while we're exterminating these other people. You cannot separate conversations about race 
from mm-hmm. conversations about power. And that was true in the 1600s. And it's true in the 2020s. Chloe, just turning our attention to you now. I mean, you teach anti-racism courses to corporates trying to educate their teams in diversity and inclusion. But your anti-racist courses, as I understand it, are dramatically different from the Ibram Kendi sort, the, who, who wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. What do you teach and how do you see racism? And, and, and what are your concerns with the current mainstream left's anti-racist ideology? I agree with much of what Ian just laid out. I think that one of the primary differences in our organization's approach to anti-racism, theory of enchantment's approach to anti-racism, is that whereas I would say perhaps extreme leftist organizations will say, let's analyze things on a systems level, we say that the most complex system in the known universe is the human being. And so if you want to actually deal with the oldest system uh, in the universe, you do not deal with the institution um, as such, which may be hundreds of years old. You actually deal with the limbic system, which is 150 million years old, (laughs) and which every human being is carrying uh, within them. Mm. And so we tackle supremacy on that level. Mm. It isn't to say that it's right or wrong to tackle it on that level. It isn't to say that it's right or wrong to tackle it on another level, but this is the level that we tackle it at. And what Mm. does that mean? It means that supremacy is not simply some, you know, sort of mystical thing that's out there. It's actually very much a default human setting and it exists and it manifests when human beings don't know how to deal with their own insecurities in a holistic way Mm. and instead project it out onto other groups of people in order to feel secure about themselves. Mm. Now, if you scale that up, you get the brutal actions of the Atlantic slave trade and you get the brutal actions of colonialism um, and other such examples of human brutality But ultimately, they are sourced in that fundamental inability on the part of human beings, which, by the way, manifests in every culture in different uh, ways. But the inability of human beings to get in right relationship with our full complexity, such that we will actually be able to take in our own diversity and not be threatened by the diversity of other human beings. And so we work on that level and we have different workshops and uh, online courses that teach teams, both in the corporate level, but also in other you know, organizations as well, how to do that inner work such that they can model a different way of being and model a more integrated way of being. But just as a sort of basis, Chloe, I wanted to understand the pillars of your theory and particularly the one where you say that we need to treat people as humans, not abstractions, because that feels like a very key part of your, your, your way of viewing racism. Yes. So that's the first principle of the theory of enchantment, treat people like human beings, not political abstractions. And we go into, well, what does it actually mean to be a human being? Hmm. What is it that we are carrying, uh, the baggage that we carry as human beings? We use a lot of pop culture and specifically the arts to help people explore 
the complexity mm. of what it means to be a human being. So, for example, when Kendrick Lamar says, I got power, poison, pain, and joy inside my DNA, he is illustrating the artist's capacity to be self-aware and aware of his contradictory feelings and aware mm. of the fact that as a human being, in one context, he might feel you know, hardworking. In another context, he might feel lazy. In one context, he might feel proud. In another context, he might feel ashamed. And this is true of the human being at, at all levels. And so the question is, if I do a, an exercise that we call the who am I exercise, where mm. I ask myself, who am I? And every answer that comes, I write that answer down and I silently say to myself, thank you. And I include the act of saying thank you for elements of myself that I don't like, mm. right? If I am able to start to express a kind of gratitude for all elements of myself, take the hardworking and lazy example, then I will be, if I can practice that, then I will be less likely to project the stereotype of lazy onto another group of people. Because when I stereotype another person, I'm also simultaneously stereotyping myself, if I go out and I say, oh, this group of people over here are lazy, I'm denying the fact that I'm lazy in certain contexts as well. Mm. Mm. In the more sort of traditional liberal versus the the progressive liberal schism at the moment, do you agree that ending legal racism and stopping bigotry isn't in fact enough? Do you, do you agree that there are more insidious forms of racism in the implicit norms of our society that consider our institutions, even our subconscious that you mentioned? And they can create real headwinds for people of color as well as real privilege for white people. Do you fundamentally accept the concept that there is institutional racism, that there are implicit biases that are produced by society? No, no, no. Of course, of course, there's institutional examples of racism. I mean, I forgot the name of the bank, but there was just the case that came out a few months ago where a bank in the United States was is being sued because it clearly has become or has been shown to have been uh, biased against, for example, mm. would-be uh, receivers of loans who are African-American. And it has been shown that they were systemically, you know, not giving loans to African-Americans. So I'm not saying that there's, you know, no institutional racism. But mm. what I am saying is that there has to be some kind of psychological work some kind mm. of psychological trust that is built within the people in order to sustain the institutional level, um, you know, into the future. Thanks. That's interesting. Ian, I want to turn our attention to anti-racism for a moment. When I read Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, the thing that struck me is, is how incredibly articulate and clear-cut his, his theory of racism is. It's like he's almost wrapped the very messy world of racism in a bow that I'm not a philosophy major, but it felt like almost deductive reasoning. As I understand it, he says that, first of all, all races are equal, right, which which makes sense. And second, there's a big difference of outcomes in racial groups. And therefore, the only rational reason for inequality of outcome must be racism. And any other appeal to to other reasons for racism just proves that you're a racist because you must be challenging the assumption that all races are equal. It's a, it's a very sort of clear, logical um, argument. But do you think it's true that all meaningful differences in outcome between racial groups has to come down to racism? Is there no role for culture or for historical racism that may not exist today, but that still exerts influence? 
And, and how does it explain examples where inequality of outcome so clearly don't come down to racism? For example, you know, maybe why groups like Asians might outperform by some metrics. That's clearly not because of, of structural racism against white people. How do, how do you how do you make sense of, of my confusion here? I think that what Kendi did that was an enormously important contribution was to say, mm. let's make a distinction between being anti-racist versus not racist. And, mm. and the distinction he was making was between a sort of a comfortable complacency that says, well, I'm not actively racist, therefore I don't really have to engage with this. Yes. And, and I think, you know, this might be a part of the interesting conversation with Chloe because I think yeah. a lot of individual psychological work is aimed at people saying to themselves, I'm not actively racist. Am I therefore innocent? Hmm. And at the same time, but but from there, Kendi goes on to say, no, no, that's not enough in a society like those we've inherited. You actually have to work to dismantle these things that hmm. produce not only vast um, differences in outcome, produce material and psychological hardships for large groups of people, but I would say, in fact, threaten our democracy, in fact, threaten our ability to manage climate change, right? Like the ramifications of racism are truly global and and none of us are immune from the negative effects of racism. So I think mm. Kendi puts on the table, we should be working actively against it. Mm. Here's where I think Kendi uh, uh, falls short his understanding of racism is almost totalizing. He's using yes. one word to describe very, very different phenomena. So we can think about racism as taking multiple forms. One way you might conceive of racism is the sort of spittle-laced uh, spittle uh, outrage and invective of somebody who's drunk and spewing race-based hatred. I, okay, clearly racist. Another way you might think about it is the way in which when you organize colonial settler societies around ideologies of race to justify power and exploitation, that's going to manifest itself in contemporary inequalities in position and access. Hmm. That's not the same sort of racism as the personal hate-fueled bigotry, but it helps us to think it's racism in the sense that racism as a word carries – and actually, let me pause and let me emphasize this. What is the word racism doing for us? It's doing two mm. things. It's saying these differences are not rooted in biology and do not reflect an inher inherent superiority and inferiority of different groups. In other words, the word racism is saying race as a set of beliefs of superior and inferior people – that's a lie. It's yeah. not that it's nature or God that has ordained these differences. It's that it's social practices that we're going to call racism. That's the first thing it's doing. The second thing racism is doing is it's putting a moral valence on that insight. It's saying, and not only did society produce these differences, not only did society produce these beliefs, it was wrong to do so. Yeah, I think all of that came through very clearly. And there is this great development in the understanding of race in his book, which urges us to actually take action and not hide behind neutrality. But do you think the focus on equality of outcome as as the evidence for racism and that, that causal line he draws and says, 
really there can't be anything else but racism at work when there's inequality of outcome. Do you think that that's true or are there roles for for, for cultural factors and, and, and other factors that might produce inequality of outcome? I think what happens is an emphasis on outcome alone can easily become an impediment to thinking about how complicated social practices and phenomena actually work and mm. which can be targeted. So to come back to, for example, you mentioned Asian Americans or, or, or Asians and their, and their uh, educational success. Yes. At least in the United States, Asian Americans as families are more economically successful on average than whites as families. Yes. But not when you control for educational level. Many immigrants to the United States from Asia arrive with graduate degrees, many of them with PhDs. It's no surprise their children then are highly competitive in educational settings. Once you control for families with PhDs, white families with PhDs are economically more successful than Asian American families with PhDs, right? So there's there's always multiple factors going on here. It seems to me that that the left is, for good reason, concerned never to victim blame. You know, we know that the right, of course, loves to hold individuals accountable and hates the idea of letting people off the hook by recognizing the structural limitations of our lives. But do you think the left's ideological aversion to victim blaming means it can sometimes just not acknowledge evidence if it contradicts its worldview? Now, as I'm going to give a hypothetical, which is a bit of a silly one on purpose, but I'm Jewish. And if there was evidence that Jews underperformed in sport, and if the evidence showed that there are cultural reasons for it, maybe like Jews not valuing sporting prowess, rather than them being evidence of systemic racism that caused the underperformance, the left may interpret that finding as victim blaming. But if the cultural factors are true, I wonder if ignoring it might end up disempowering the Jewish community as they see themselves as victims of racism rather than as agents able to change their culture and their future. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting for a moment there isn't huge structural racism out there. Of course there is. But do you think the sort of a priori aversion to victim blaming means that we might be able to lose the ability to see what's truly due to racism, what might be to other reasons, and therefore how to actually fix things in the best way and put the resources in the right direction? I think the important place to start is why the aversion to victim blaming. And the insight there is Victim blaming is precisely how power and domination explains itself. It yes. roots what it does, the violence it visits on people, the marginalization it imposes in a story about the inferiority and the undeservingness of the very people it victimizes. So, of course, when we turn around and we think about disproportionate poverty among certain groups, mm. we need to be extremely careful that we don't reinforce the dominant ideology that says, well, they're poor because there's something wrong with those people. There's something pathological about their family structure. They're overly fond of alcohol. They're um, um, inured to violence and to pain. We need to be very careful not to reinforce those dominant explanations for social practices of superiority and inferiority. It, now, does yes. that impede the conversation? Sure it does. In, mm. in a truly racially egalitarian society that truly believed in the equality of all groups and that had deeply internalized those insights, we could have much franker conversations 
about particular patterns among certain groups. But in a society which is actively seeking to denigrate some groups by blaming their blaming their condition, their position on supposed inferiority in them, we need to be very careful. And so let me let mm, me give an example. Mm. Martin Luther King was actually quite outspoken about the fact that brutalizing a people imbrutes them. He would mm. say, "Look at what's happened with the African American family, the 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 violence." Um, the 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 broken families uh the poverty the trauma and then he hmm. would say but what we as a society have done we as a society should fix so hmm. he was he was trying to capture this nuance trying to say if you mistreat people for generations they will behave in pathologically destructive ways. They will, if you brutalize people, they will be imbruted. Yeah. But it is not that they are brutish by nature. We've done this as a society. It's almost like to be able to have a conversation that that's nuanced, you need to really feel goodwill uh, and good faith on both sides because you don't want to fuel a way of seeing the world which has been so so prevalent, as you say, which, which sort of uses anything that it can find as a means to justify, you know, inferiority of certain races. And- I think that's right. And let me add one other factor. Uh, Chloe mentioned Derek Bell. One of Derek Bell's insights was what he called the superstanding of people of color who criticize other people of color. And what he meant was dominant ideology is constantly inventing, looking for, reinforcing stories about the inferiority of people who've been brutalized and marginalized and exploited. And when those stories are mouthed by people from those communities, they get superstanding. They get additional credibility. They're held up now as this spokesperson who's who can demonstrate that like, hey, it's not racism to say something's wrong with black people. Here's this black person who says the same thing. Right? Mm. So that there's this phenomena of the person of color who serves as a critic of other people of color getting extra standing, whereas people who are calling for a truly racially egalitarian society that dismantles hierarchy and ugly ideologies of difference, they tend to be uh, diminished in the credibility they're afforded. I would just question the notion that the access, quote unquote, that a supremacist society has to power and wealth and loads and loads of equity, for lack of a better word, is somehow the aspiration or should be the aspiration that other peoples should have. You know, one of my favorite authors is Albert Murray, who wrote The Omni-Americans, who wrote about the kaleidoscope really that is America and the United States of America and he talked about the pathologies that come out of uh, a a white supremacist society and James Baldwin spoke about this as well Mm. when he spoke about how and he was speaking this was a psychological insight when he debated William F. Buckley and said that the racist sheriff who 
he says he's presumably a man and he knows what it is to love his wife and love his his child and like me he probably likes to get drunk a few times but he does not know what actually drives him to beat the black woman uh, in the south and then he says something interesting he says what he has done to the woman is ghastly but what has happened to him is in some ways far worse and so part of the critique that I have of, I would say, the, maybe the extreme left, the extreme left's take on uh, racism is that it starts to inadvertently depict a supremacist society with all of its trappings and all of its access to material power and wealth as somehow an aspiration, not realizing that the very things which have driven white supremacist tendencies in the first place are actually themselves pathological. And I'm sorry, can you give me an example? What I mean by that is oftentimes in the left's critique of white supremacy, they simul the left simultaneously depicts the white supremacist world, one where one group of people has access to, let's say, disproportionate amounts of wealth and power as the thing to be acquired. Meaning, in contrast, in contrast, right? If you look at King's idea... So so the left aspires to the disproportionate concentration of wealth and power in the hands of people of color? Is that what you're claiming? The left, and I'm broadly generalizing here, but the left in many cases, holds up wealth and power as the end-all, be-all, as opposed to a society in which love is the highest value, compassion is the highest value. The left is still stuck. So in I'm much not of sure its, what left you're its- talking about. I'm not sure what left you're talking about. Clearly, power and wealth are very important as they're distributed in society. But much of the left that I'm aware of grounds the idea of shared access to power and wealth and humanistic values in the idea of a shared equality, in in the aspiration for a society of a genuine commitment to racial egalitarianism and a commitment to fighting hierarchy. Is it is it that the left and you know, from my reading of both sides, the left does seem predominantly focused on the material yes. effects of of the disproportionate access of power in society. They look at inequality in a materialist sense, inequality of wealth, prison, health, um, all these those... things, and that the aspiration, therefore, is implied to be we need to aspire to equality in all those things. And what I can understand Chloe saying is implicit in this is this hierarchy of flourishing that is very materialist-based, and it's materialist-based on on a white hierarchy. Social scientists tend to focus on material outcomes, but they do so for Mm. a methodological reason. They're easy to measure. Exactly. The left, in terms of political figures like Martin Luther King or intellectuals like Ta-Nehisi Coates, I don't see them obsessed with material outcomes. But here's this other thing that I think ought to be named. Chloe, in some of her past remarks, and to a certain extent in these remarks today, is creating a false symmetry between the left and the right. And she's doing so actually in a way that's remarkable now, saying the left 
aspires to some of the greatest ills of a white supremacist culture. And, and I really want to say, hey, as a rhetorical move, that's extremely dangerous. The left has its errors. The left has its moments when it puts excessive emphasis on one thing versus another. But the notion that there's some equivalence between what the reactionary right is doing and some supposed woke left, that's doing a tremendous disservice to those people who are genuinely committed to racial and human egalitarianism, who obviously don't always get things right, but who are truly motivated by a sense of trying to create a more equitable, just society across a range of different metrics, material, also moral, also uh, uh, in terms of prestige and status, and also in, term, in terms that are psychologically healthy. You know, Ian, I appreciate this dialogue. I am not really trying to paint a dichotomy between the right and the left. I think this is a basic human issue. I think that both on the right and the left, you can find people of notes that are pursuing the good things that you just outlined. And I think, especially culturally, obviously on the right, but certainly on the left, there is a value system, which I have seen that is very materialistically minded and materialistically said, and is not having conversations, quite frankly, about love and what that means existentially and psychologically, but are having conversations in what Eric Fromm would call the having mode that are exclusively and explicitly about materialism and that explicitly paint a picture in which the pursuit of wealth and power, the obtaining of wealth and power is the end all be all. And that is a critique I would have of the left. It's certainly a critique I would have of the right. But again, this is not political for me. This is a basic human default desire that we have to learn how to overcome in the long run. Okay, that's that was a great interchange. And Chloe, what I really enjoy about your theory is in a sense that it's a bit unfashionable and that it doesn't just deal with or doesn't primarily focus on, on the material. You're interested in the individual psychology of racism, not the collective psychology. You're fascinated by the archetypes and mythologies by the black and white in each of us. And, and you see salvation in recognizing what's common to us all um, rather than drawing attentions to our differences. But let's to go to archetypes for a second. How, how, do you, how does thinking about whiteness and blackness as archetypes open up our way of understanding not just race but ourselves? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've started studying Taoism and um, other Eastern philosophies in contrast to the West. And I, I find, broadly speaking, that the West's conception of blackness and whiteness sort of overlays blackness with moral ineptitude, to put it nicely. Uh, corruption would be the worst way to put it. And whiteness with purity and you know, goodness and things of that nature. Whereas in the Eastern system um, of Taoism, when you look at the yin-yang you know, sign, there's always a little bit of darkness and light. There's always a little bit of light and darkness. These two things actually depend upon each other. And these two things are not necessarily imbued with a sense of good and evil or labeled as good and evil in the same way it is in the Western concept. I, I do not believe in 
you know, I do not believe in a society in which we no longer identify as black or white. Um, some people believe in that. That is more than, you know, it's more than their right to do so. Um, I don't think that that's what's going to get us to a society in which the beloved community is sort of central. But I do think the transmutation of our understanding of blackness and whiteness into a more Eastern framework uh, is what would be helpful and and would take us to that next stage. Um, that can sound, you know, very esoteric, but again, I'm I'm thinking about that idea of integration that I spoke about earlier and, and how one can learn how to integrate all of their complexities so that can, they can get in right relationship with themselves. Thank you. Race, as I understand it, is a social construct, one created by systems of oppression by whites. What seems strange to many traditional liberals is the current zeitgeist on the left to double down on racial identity. Now, I understand it might be a strategic necessity, as if you don't acknowledge it, um, the argument is that you can't see it and address it, right? But the current climate on the progressive left is is to celebrate identity in a way that feels more than strategic or temporary. Is the goal here to temporarily affirm race in order to end it, or is it to create non-hierarchical multiracial tribes that respect each other? And if so, is that a little weird given that race is a product of oppression itself? Well, one quick comment. I think um, when I say that race reflects power and that racism Mm. is fundamentally about power. I don't mean by that to limit my analysis to a material analysis or to a systems analysis. I think power as a question is very important for people psychologically. And so I want to acknowledge that sort of Chloe's emphasis on psychology and the human psychology of race is tremendously important. Now now to your question, is I, is grabbing on to racial identity, uh, you know, what's the long-term vision of that? It's hard to answer that question, but in some ways it's also an irrelevant question. And here's why. Mm. I think we're a hundred years, 50 years at least, maybe more before we get to a society that is genuinely racially egalitarian. As we move closer to that we can then have productive conversations that go along the lines of, should we hold on to our sense of racial identity or should we jettison them? Should we move in the direction of groups and and descent-based culture? Is even that oppressive and anachronistic? Yes. Should we instead embrace the idea that we're all fully capable of choosing the cultures that resonate with us? But Ian, I don't think... Reasonable people would doubt many of the central claims of critical race theory. Racism exists on much deeper levels than individual bigotry, that it's in the norms of institutions, even in ourselves. But if we turn our lens to the aim of social solidarity, social cohesion, liberalism has been pretty darn good at coming up with the rules and codes to enable all different people from different backgrounds to live together. Do you think the ideas of critical race theory and anti racism, which says that there's no neutrality, white privilege, identity politics in general, does it help social cohesion or make it harder? And I'm, I'm thinking here about white working class people who are told they're a priv- they are privileged and maybe they are as opposed to the equivalent black working class, but you know, you've said yourself it's a hard sell. 
and, and which many people of colour don't ascribe to, you know, and a significant number of them vote for parties like the Republican Party. And with the continued multiplication of identity categories, gender, sexuality, ableist, mental health, class, does it turn or risk turning groups against each other as they each claim to be more oppressed as where you stand in the power hierarchy now does have real repercussions. You can punch up, but you can't punch down. You can discriminate one way, but not another way. So how do you think about the trade-offs with social cohesion? And maybe you could talk a bit about your idea of a multiracial coalition. Yeah, it's a great question. When I think about what's happening in the United States among scholars of racism, what I see is a forgetting of some of the more radical conceptions of racism from the past, from people like Du Bois, W.B. Du Bois, writing about Black Reconstruction, or even Martin Luther King in organizing a poor people's campaign. Their great insight was that racism reflects efforts at power, efforts to control power, efforts to concentrate power, efforts to distract people from how power and wealth are actually circulating in society. And so, for example, Martin Luther King would say, it's not enough to fight racism. You have to also reform and and uh, you, you have also to regulate capitalism. You also have to take on militarism or in more contemporary terms, colonialism. All mm. of these are intertwined. I think what's happening among many people on what I call the race left today is that many of them are focusing on racism or on patriarchy or on discrimination on the basis of disability or transsexual identity. They're focusing on those as if they're single access issues, that racism Mm -hmm. is about white versus other people, that patriarchy is about men versus women. Yes, those are important dynamics, but the key insight is these different forms of social division are a weapon in the hands of society's oligarchs who push division, who encourage division so that we're busy fighting each other rather than concentrating on overcoming these hierarchies and building a sense of connection among each other, right? So this idea of social solidarity, it's precisely the foundation, the root for democracy. It's the demos, the people in democracy. But the idea of a demos isn't that we're all homogenous. The idea is we have to work hard to build a sense of shared Mm. connection, of linked fate. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Join us next week for Principle of Charity on the Couch, where Lloyd challenges the guests to assess just how charitable they think they've been during this conversation. And they'll also be tackling today's big button issues such as cancel culture. Is there any role for public shaming? Is this a good thing? Of course, public shaming is part of the way that society communicates what sort of behavior is conducive to our vision of a just society and what sort of behavior cannot be tolerated. That and more next week. And if you'd like to support us, leave a review, tell your friends or find us on social media. See you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.